millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Fan of Astronomy, episode number 10. Welcome all to another episode of Fan of Astronomy. I'm one of the hosts of this show, coming from beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the United States. My name is Angelo, and I'm joined from... Sweden? From the small town of Söderhamn in the north of Sweden. I'm okay. Dan. He is Don. Don Horning. Yeah, Dan, Don, Don. Yeah, we're all going to call Something him Dan. Like D-A-M. Yeah, we're all going to call him Dan, but, you know, I, I try at least at the beginning of the show to pronounce your name right. Yeah, it's uh, you You are almost correct in the pronunciation. But, uh, yeah, let's go with Dan. Okay, sounds good. Where did I mess up? The last name. <laughs> okay, you will never get that right. Uh... Horning. 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 <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Pretty okay. Good. Don Herning. Okay. Got it. <laughs> yes. I can pronounce names. Come on, man. Good. Uh, asteroids. Yes, we're going to talk about the big asteroids today, and it's going to be super exciting, but first we have to talk about Patreon. Yes, we do. Patreon is a way for you to fund this podcast and to sponsor it if you like it, and it's kind of like a contract. You say, I'll give you $2 if you make an episode. And we have to make actual episodes for you uh, for you to uh, pay us the money. And if we hit certain levels, we do stuff. If we, if we hit 700 bucks, we will uh, go weekly and produce an episode every week. I would love to stop at 699. I'm just saying. <laughs> 
Well, when the train gets close to 700, it doesn't stop. Uh, we will also do bonus episodes along the way, and the first one is at $100, called Space Wants to Kill You. Everything in space, in fact, wants you dead. The fact that we exist is not the norm. It is the absolute opposite. We should not it's be It's a miracle! Here. Yeah. We should not be here. Like, it just, it, it defies logic that intelligent life ever formed. Sort of. I mean, so many things have to go right, and then on top of that, you have to still dodge so many literal bullets to stay alive that it's it's baffling, because everything wants you dead, like literally, just stupid. So today we're going to talk about the Big Five. Uh, for those who listened last week, you know that we talked about the asteroid belt in general, but we have five huge ones that we need to talk about, and these five are called Ceres, Vesta, Pallas, Hygiene, and Intermana. Intermana. Look, I'm going to mess that up the entire time. <laughs> yes. Intermnia is how I, I came to be happy with pronouncing it. Okay. Let's, um, well, it doesn't sound like the other ones, so uh, that will work. Okay, so this episode will give each of the big five objects in the main belt its rightly deserved time to shine. As we go over series Vesta, Palace, Hygieia, and Intermnia, we would hope to bring these worlds into view just a little bit better. These five take up more than 50% of the entire belt's material. However, combined, the entire belt is still smaller than our own moon. It could be said that if you take these five away, we wouldn't even call it a belt. Without them, we would easily just look at it as, hey, there's a rock over there. Hey, a couple more over there. These giants bring it all together and make us view it as something worthy of stu- real study with its own designation. Obviously, we're going to start with the big one. The first dwarf planet in our solar system, located at an average of 2.766 AUs from the Sun, and is the only one, in fact, within Neptune's orbit. On New Year's Day 1801, Giuseppe Piazza looked up and finally discovered the predicted body between Mars and Jupiter and named it a planet. It remained the fifth planet until the 1850s when it was reclassified as an asteroid. So, Ceres, we're looking at what? It's a C-type, but a G-type asteroid. Yeah, it's its own type, pretty much. It it was counted as a C-type, but now it's, like, it's serious. <laughs> it's special in every way, and you will have to pull me off it in order to stop talking about it. Okay, so that in the Thalen scale, it's a G-class, but more importantly, it's a dwarf planet. Yes, it's a dwarf planet. It's uh, rounded by its own gravity, and it's made uh, out of ice and rock, so... Uh, Rounding it is pretty difficult. You could find smaller things in the Kuiper belt, made mostly of ice that is rounded, that are smaller. But this is, uh, in a way, the lower limit for a dwarf planet. It's really tiny compared to the other acknowledged dwarf planets in our solar system. But if you look at the stuff that should be dwarf planets, you find only three things bigger than Ceres. Uh, and that's uh, my favorite 2007 OR-10, Kuar. And Sedna. Uh, and then you have two other objects of similar size to Ceres, but Ceres is slightly bigger than Orcus and 2002 MS4. Um, a dwarf planet this close to the Earth is interesting, of course, because the other ones are far out, like Pluto and Eris and out there, past Neptune. Yeah. Here it is. <laughs> a dwarf planet close to us. It is also an asteroid. We yeah. should not forget that. It's the number one asteroid, the first one discovered, the biggest one. It's 33% of the mass of the asteroid belt in just one thing. Uh, when Dawn went to Ceres, uh, Dawn was such an 
Dawn is still going on, but it was a super interesting mission two years ago. Uh, it orbited Vesta for a while, and then it went to Dawn, uh, to Ceres, and it's now orbiting Ceres. We learned so much about this place, because we learned so much about Pluto in 2015, but New Horizons just blitzed past Pluto, and Dawn is still orbiting, so we're still getting, getting a lot of data. It seems that we know now that Ceres has a rocky core and an icy mantle, and it is very likely that we have an internal ocean of liquid water. And the estimates right now is that this internal ocean has more water than all fresh water on Earth, yeah. which is pretty interesting. Fresh water. That, that has to be stressed, not water water. Fresh yes, water. Fresh water, yes. Um, this means that Ceres is now one uh, likely candidate for life in the solar system, which was considered a bizarre statement in 2014. Yeah, and we get a lot of our evidence for, you know, this underground ocean, basically, from cryovolcanism. That's basically volcanoes made of ice that shoot water up into space, and the biggest one is named Ahana Mons, and it's just one of many. Now, it looks like it's kind of the only one that's active right now. That's why we can see traces of other cryo, uh, other ice volcanoes. But this one is uh, has recent activity. Right, right, right. And, I mean, this thing is four kilometers big, or four kilometers high, and we're talking about four kilometers high on a planet, dwarf planet, whatever you want to call it, with a mean yeah. radius of only 473 kilometers. So, like, yeah, this so thing this sticks like, up. This is, like, the size of the highest Alps. Yeah. In, in Europe, and it's on this tiny dwarf planet. <laughs> so yeah. It's, it's quite an impressive mountain. It's like having a nose, just bang, there it is. <laughs> the planet yeah, has a uh, nose. Well, I'm just <laughs> speechless thinking about this crazy place. It, it's nuts. I mean, it's riddled with these bright spots, too. Yes, and it looks like there, there are still debate going on what they are. Right. But they're probably salts. Right, but it's a special type of salt. It's not the, uh, they think. It could be yes. normal salt, you know, that we know, you know, uh, what is that, nitrogen carbonate? Yeah. Or sulfate. Yeah. Well, this one is, uh, nitrogen carbonate salt is what they believe this is, but they have no, you know, factual evidence. It's not like they've sent something down there to actually pick up the chemical composition of it. And no. as we've learned with comets, that you can think that it's one thing. And then when you actually get the co- chemical composition, it's completely different. Like we thought that we was going to find water, like normal water on that one comet that we dropped the, uh, dishwasher on <laughs> and and it turned out that it wasn't normal water it was a different type of water but still water yes. so i mean it, it, but that, that's what they currently think yeah it's uh there are uh, discussion about it but uh, some some sort of salt and uh, maybe mixed with ice turns out that Ceres um, is close to the sun compared to a lot of things in the solar system so its temperature is about 230 kelvin and this is far below freezing, but not too far. So ice itself is kind of behaving like in winter on Earth. A really, really tough Siberian winter, but you still get ice behaving not like rock, but like a body in a way. So the ice on Ceres could move and do things like that, whereas the ice on Pluto it, it's just frozen solid. Mm. Uh, which means that strange things happen on Ceres. Such as? Uh, Talk yeah, to me. You said I'm going to have to literally pull you off of the talking about Sirius. So the way I'm looking at it is the next 10 minutes or so, I shouldn't have to talk. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have a, a period, uh, about 4.6 Earth years. Uh, 
Sears hangs around at about 2.7 AU, which is uh, yeah, pretty in the middle of the asteroid belt. Uh, so the radius of Sears is 470 kilometers. I will post pictures of the five big asteroids superimposed over Earth countries. So you get a pretty good picture of how big they are. Uh, the, the total surface area is about the same as India or Argentina on Sirius. So it's a, it's both small and big at the same time, depending on what scale you look at it. If you look at it next to the moon or Pluto, it's really small. But if you look at it next to Belgium, it's, it's enormous. Yeah, I mean, if you think of it on a person scale, like you can fit a lot of people in Argentina. Oh, yeah. So that's big. But yeah, if you stick, if you look at it on a cosmic scale, I mean, we're tiny. So that makes this thing minuscule. Yes. So it's all on what scale you want to look at it. If you look at the, the, the stuff that's in the solar system, which we will come back to uh, size-wise, which we'll come back, come back to in our news item, it's the 33rd biggest object in the solar system. And that's pretty big. Spoiler alert, Dan. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, you let them know that the news section is coming back for this episode. Wow, dude. Yes. Just spoiling everything. We have a small actual tilt on Ceres, which creates poles. So you have areas at the poles which are in constant darkness, which creates sort of an ice trap. So if you have water vapor in the atmosphere, if you could call it an atmosphere, which Ceres has, we discover water emissions from Ceres. Yeah, it's and, it's not it's a tenuous atmosphere at best. Yeah, I of mean, course it's um, it's just water vapor left from you know Ahana Mons mostly. <laughs> it's just yeah. still kind of hovering around. The gravity is kind of keeping it in place, but it does have a loose atmosphere. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we also. If you are super, if you have super good eye vision, you're sharp sighted and you're in a totally dark environment, you can see Sirius. Yep. Or if you have it's, a pair of binoculars. Yes. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's no, it's, uh, not a coincidence that it was the first asteroid discovered and they thought it was a planet because yeah. it's pretty easy to spot compared to the other ones. Yeah. I mean, like when I say binoculars, I mean binoculars, like you don't need a telescope to see Sirius. Just, Go grab your binoculars, look out like you would. Instead of looking at your neighbor's wife, turn your binoculars into the sky, and you will see this dwarf planet if you look at the right area during the right time and all that other stuff. But you can actually just see him with normal binoculars. You don't need anything crazy. Uh, yes. <laughs> did I did I throw you off when I said turn it away from your neighbor's wife? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I have to bring some humor to this. It can't be all just fact, 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 fact. We, I mean, at some point, we got to make people laugh. I for my neighbor's wife in the window, but she wasn't up. <laughs> oh, darn. And... <laughs> That's okay. They look best as soon as they're pulling out of bed. Oh, wait. I shouldn't talk like that. I <laughs> bet <laughs> my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. Eh, neither does mine. She makes it a point to go to bed before I start, and she never downloads it. <laughs> so, so one thing that confused me was, okay, if we have a liquid water ocean under an ice shell, Yes. On the earth. What keeps the water liquid? Friction. You, yeah, you, you should have some sort of heat source, right? I would say friction. It's uh, what kind of friction? Um, I don't know exactly what type, but I would think that Jupiter's pulling on it a little bit. 
And just like the gravitational forces of everything that's around it probably pulls, you know, in multiple different directions, which causes ice flows to shift ever so slightly like tides. And that's going to create fi- friction. And that friction will create liquid. And, you know, this creates the volcanoes because as any early physics exam will teach you, when it goes from a solid to a liquid, it gets bigger. <laughs> it uh, takes up more space. Yes, it takes uh, up the more pressure space. pressure from the ice sheet will help. But there seems to be a source of heat on this tiny dwarf planet as well. And it's probably radioactive. Ooh. So, in, in a sense, this is not a dead rock like we thought it was. But there's something going on inside of it. There's a star in the middle of it. No, probably not. Oh, darn. <laughs> Ceres is pretty much a planetary, a, a protoplanet. This was a planet that was supposed to form, but Jupiter messed it up. So all of that stuff that we talked about last time that was lost from the main belt, that could have gone here and created a nice, maybe even uh, Mars-sized planet, Mercury-sized planet at least. Maybe bigger, we don't know. We don't know what was in the belt that uh, long ago. Jupiter destroyed it, Jupiter wrecked it. So we get this dwarf planet, but we still get this dwarf planet, which is super interesting. We we think about Europa as the the main source for... uh, the, our hope for life in the solar system is like the number one candidate. The conditions here are somewhat similar and uh, much closer to the sun, which means heat. We don't have the great heat source of Jupiter Jupiter gravity, right. but we do have the sun, which is a much better heat. We do. So we do have to uh, look at this place a lot more to learn more. And there is some crazy Chinese uh, space plan for this. The Chinese Space Agency is going to do a sample retrieval mission. Ooh, we're going to find out what that salt is. That will land on Ceres in the 2020s. That's awesome. Ah, that will be so amazing. And you know why they're doing this, right? To get there first. No, because it got promoted from an asteroid to a dwarf planet. To say it happened in 2006, it's weird because Ceres, like the Dawn mission... And New Horizons, yes. So the Dawn mission and New Horizons were like a month apart. Okay, so like the serious, the serious stuff came in, and everyone's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And then a month later, the Pluto stuff comes in, and it kind of shuts everything up. But if it wasn't for Pluto getting demoted, Sirius yeah. would have still been just considered a normal asteroid, and n- never would have became a dwarf planet. So like these two will forever be linked, and it, it, it's not just from the missions; it, it's from just in general, it seems like the two seem to have things happen at the same time, at least as of late. Yes, yeah. Uh, some other stuff. Uh, it rotates in uh, nine hours around itself. So, it does? The uh, uh, series day is 9.1 hours. Yes. Uh, and we have some, yeah. I, I was going to say, like, uh, we keep calling it Cirrus, but if you're, uh, you know, from uh, Greece, per se, we call it, they call it uh, Demeter. And that's not to be confused with 1108 Demeter, which is another asteroid, but they call it Demeter. And for a while in Greece or in Germany, this was called Hera. That's weird. Yeah, I I thought that was a little strange too, but... That should be something around Jupiter. It really should be, realistically, but they used to. Now they kind of go with the international Cirrus uh, way of saying it. And I I think that that's that's kind of neat, the fact that it's called something different elsewhere. And we've had rare rare Earth elements were actually named after this thing. Cerium. (laughs) Yeah, it was. So whenever you use Cerium, think about Cirrus. 
But there will be a lot more data coming out of Dawn and other things looking at Sirius, so stay tuned for that. I mean, this is easily my... This It's weird, because when Pluto was being visited by New Horizon, I was still soaking up all the info from, you know, yeah. the initial Dawn thing, and I had already kind of had a love affair with this place. Because, you know, <laughs> it, too. it was our fifth planet, like... Why did it get demoted? Why, you know, I, I just, I spent a lot more time than most people normally do actually looking into this place. And I mean, you've covered it fairly well, um, but I love this place and I just wanted to make sure everybody understands that. <laughs> it also uh, re- raises the question that if we learned this much from visiting series, we learned that much from going past Pluto, which secrets do the other dwarf planets hide? So New Horizons couldn't uh, make it to another dwarf planet after Pluto, but I think that uh, a mission to Eris would be really interesting. I think that's the prime target as well. See, I want them to send one to Maki Maki. Or Homiya. Uh, no, specifically Maki Maki, because it's so weird-shaped. Like, <laughs> I, I just want them to send it there. Like, I, I just I want to get close-ups of that. That's the next place on my personal hit list that I want to see. Yeah, random fact. Uh, that could be interesting as well, is that uh, the so-called moon, but rather the sister dwarf planet of Pluto, Charon, it's actually bigger than Sirius is. Charon is bigger? Yeah, Charon is uh, 600 kilometers diameter, so it's uh, it's much bigger. Hmm. And if you look at the mass, it's about 30% bigger. Oh, now I'm, I'm talking in my... Let me get that right. It's, it's bigger volume-wise and size... Mass-wise, it's about 60% bigger than Sirius. Okay. Eh, makes sense. So of course, Charon, rounded by its own gravity, it's uh, the shared gravitational center between Pluto and Charon is way outside of Pluto. Charon is a dwarf planet. Is it? <laughs> yes, but now I left the subject. I think I'm done with Sirius for the time being. Do you have anything to add? Um, you pretty much covered everything that I would have covered about it. I mean, you know, you, you failed to mention that uh, the... You you did say that the, it has a rocky core and an icy mantle, but the crust is mostly carbonate and clay. So it's actually kind of close to what you'd find in a lot of regions of the United of the United States and of the world, I would assume. Um, how did that happen? I have no freaking clue. What? How did this has taken a lot of hits of stuff? So maybe that's remains so like I mean, crap that landed. Well, the thing is, like you're, you're talking. Well, how does you know clays form? Well, I mean, how did we get clay? You know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's like, oh, freaking no. You know, I, I'm not an astronomer. I just play one on the radio. <laughs> one more thing. Definitely not a geologist, so meh. <laughs> one more thing about Sirius. We used to think that it was part of a collisional family. We like to arrange these asteroids into collisional families. They're like they, they were once the same object. But now we know the series is so different, so this collisional family was demoted to being named after some much smaller asteroid that was the second biggest in the family. And Sirius is not part of it, but Vesta is part of one collisional yes, family. Vesta. So, now we move to Vesta, a giant asteroid located just 2.362 AUs from the Sun. Heinrich Wilhelm Olbers found it on March 28, 1807. It was the fourth item found inside the asteroid belt. Strangely, it was the fourth discovered, yet it's clearly the brightest of the asteroids from Earth. Named after the Roman goddess of hearth and home, number four Vesta is where we turn our attention to now. So Vesta is a V-class because, it, like everything in that collision, they just call V. 
after Vesta, but it's named Hestia in Greece because they can't keep any of the same names that we keep, and it's named Zhao Xingzi in China, which translates to Hearth God Star. This was initially classified as a planet same as Ceres, and it suffered basically the same fate as being demoted in the 1850. Coop. Coop. Oh, <laughs> after Vesta was discovered, though, there was a 38-year gap between that one and the next one that they found. So it, yeah. it, there was just, like, so much time. Like, at first, it was like, you know, asteroid, 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 asteroid. They discovered these you know, four asteroids really quickly, and then there was 38 years before they found another one. So that's part of the reason why at first they was like, oh, that's a planet. Oh, that's a planet. Oh, that's a planet. Hey, you get a planet, and you get a planet, and you get a planet, like Oprah. And then <laughs> after 38 years, they're like, wait, 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 wait. We found a bunch more crap up there. Those all can't be planets. And they demoted them all. And that happened in the 1850s. I want to give a short thought to 3 Juno. That is not part of our podcast today. It used to be, it was the third asteroid discovered. We used to think it was really big, but it falls outside the top five now. It does, so, sadly. Cheers for Juno. Uh, okay. Vest, Vesta, Continue, yes, Vesta will orbit it, the sun in exactly 3.6 Earth years. Oh, that's fast. Yeah, it is fairly fast. A uh, decameter sized object was detected by dawn. So it could, it's believed to have a quasi satellite, not a proper one. They, they don't, they don't think that this thing is completely locked in. So it doesn't have a moon. It's four rotations takes 5.342 hours. Wow. That's fast. So that's how long their days are. Zip. Five hours later, you know, new day. Um, it's the second largest asteroid, yet it is only a quarter of the size of Ceres. The surface area total, 800,000 square kilometers, is about the size of Pakistan. Yes, it's the 65th biggest object in the solar system, so that's quite a difference from 33rd place for Ceres. Yeah, it's not quite round. It's close. It's an oblate spheroid. Think of you having like a rubber bouncy ball and you stick your foot on it. You know how it kind of smushes down? That's what this looks like. (laughs) There are some major craters on it. The biggest of this is uh, Ray Sylvia. Sylvia. Yes, and that's on the South Pole. The width is 95% the mean diameter of Vesta. So, like, this was a huge hit. (laughs) Yikes. This almost destroyed this thing completely. It just, this was a huge hit. The hit landed 19 kilometers deep. (laughs) Yikes. And, in fact, this collision is believed to have caused all the V-type asteroids that we currently talk about. About 1% of Vesta was lost during that strike. And Ray Sylvia is so big that there's a crater that it overlays called the Venining Crater. Words and stuff. I'm good at this. <laughs> the Venea Crater. And we know of this impact because it we found rocks from it here on Earth. That's so fantastic. Yeah, and it has these neat troughs. And when I say troughs, I mean like it's, when you look at it, it, it almost looks rippled in a way. And some yeah. of these gaps in these troughs are, you know, they dwarf the Grand Canyon by a lot. Wow. Yeah, I and mean, these things go deep when, you know, when you really think about it. It's like, oh, well, we're on this big, you know, kind of rock and holy crap, this trough really runs deep. And it's like, think rolling hills, but as deep as the Grand Canyon or more, and then it comes back up into another rolling hill. And it's like that well over the planet. So, or I'm sorry, it's not a planet. <laughs> it is an asteroid. As of now, we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
the crust is ma- mainly uh, eucrates, diogenites, and regolith, which we've talked to before. And this is also a visible to the naked eye object, but you can't, you gotta be in an area without any light pollution. So you have to kind of go out in the middle of the nowhere, but you can spot it with, you know, the naked eye. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything you would like to add to number four Vesta? Yeah, I like to add that as this is closer to us, closer to the sun, it's even warmer. So you can get on a good sunny day to about 250 Kelvin. Which is like what we, we've had that temperature here this winter. You can get so a tan there. Uh, yeah, but if you're on the night side of Vesta, you, you are in trouble. You can't get a tan there. Uh, no, the, your tan would be pretty white. Oh my, you'd look like one of those things from the new Mad Max movie. Yes. Those children look terrible. How did they get this that is, white? <laughs> this is so close to a round object that it was considered as a dwarf planet candidate, but uh, now with Dawn's measurements, and so we know that it's not round. As of so, now. Yeah, so it's a, a pretty interesting limit uh, in the, the list of solar system objects by size, that we know that Vesta, Vesta is, has a high density, so there could be an object of Vesta size in the Kuiper Belt, for example, with made of ice that could be round under its own gravity. Yeah, absolutely. And then that would be considered a dwarf planet, where this is currently not uh, because of the naming, con- yeah, the naming conventions. But it's not that far off from round that I wouldn't hold it against you for saying it's round enough. It's very close to round enough. So we've mentioned Dawn a couple times now. A lot of what yeah. we know of the big two is because of the Dawn mission. The pictures alone that were sent back are worth spending an hour or two just observing. Uh, without the Dawn mission, we wouldn't fully understand all the intricacies of Ceres and Vesta. If anything, it makes us hope that further observations on other asteroids are deemed important enough to send other crafts out. So Dawn was launched in 2007, and it did some things. It did. It was, I think it was the first mission that was a multi-target orbiter mm-hmm. that could go into orbit around something and then leave it and go to another orbit. That's pretty amazing. It also was the first exploratory mission to use ion propulsion. Yeah, and uh, that makes sense. If you think about it, uh, New Horizons were launched before this. Yes. And uh, they reached their targets at the same time, but the targets for Dawn were, of course, a lot closer. Uh, and this was a very, I think compared to New Horizons, very cheap mission because of the ion propulsion. Uh-huh. And uh, I'd say it's a technology that could get us to places uh, for a fraction of the cost, and which is kind of an, interesting. And at an increase in speed. Yeah. So, I mean, that's good. These are the big sales that we talked about a long time ago. I, I am fascinated by ion propulsion, so I had to bring Yeah, and compared to New Horizons' long life bef- before it hit Pluto, it Sort of, yeah, okay, it's passing by Jupiter, maybe it sees something, but not much was happening. But Dawn was a, a continuing story from, it reached Vesta on July 16th in 2011, and it hung around in orbit for 14 months. So I was following Dawn already back then, and then so, oh, it's gonna get too serious. And it took off from Vesta, and everything worked. And it, it had a very close, uh, a big problem right when it was about to go into orbit around Ceres. Of course, it hit uh, some cosmic rays that it wasn't prepared for, so it had to enter Ceres' orbit in a, from a totally different direction than they planned it. But it worked. So it hit, uh, it reached Ceres in, uh, on March 6th in 2015 and had its uh, four months of glory before New Horizons reached Pluto. 
Yeah, but it's still there. It perpetually will just stay in orbit around Ceres, so I guess you could say Ceres has a moon. We just made it. I don't know how long it will be able to stay in orbit, because, of course, it's not stable. Yeah, I mean, they, I think. from all the reading I did, it's caught. And it's wow. it, it, it's it's hit the right speed. It's just going to stay there. So. Well, there is no other gravity well nearby, so it's not like trying to put something in orbit around the moon, because here you could have a stable orbit. Yeah. It's probably there forever, though. Yeah, I mean, they say perpetually it's going to be stuck there. I mean, that's kind of cool. We, I wonder how long we can keep in touch with it. I, I honestly have no clue. I, I looked in. I tried to look a little bit into it. I, I mean, it's still going on now. So I would think as long as they could power it up solarly, they should be able to, you know, keep contact with it. But at some point, it's going to lose its usefulness. Yeah, did you uh, did you understand how close it is to Ceres? No, I did not. No, I, I I tried to find that, but it seems to be pretty far out uh, because that's the stable orbit. Yeah. yeah but more more data to come from Dawn. And and others. Yes. And others. So our uh, second discovery, yet third largest asteroid, is Pallas, discovered March 28, 1802. This asteroid has been studied far less than our first. Uh, Olbers was a busy man, obviously, because he discovered this body not long before he discovered it. So what no. do you got to say about Pallas? Like, this is, a, this is one that you, isn't it? <laughs> I think it is super boring compared to the other two, but... Uh, okay, I'll we'll take talk it about then. It. Jeez, I, I guess I can <laughs> do, do it. Okay, so Pallas is a B-type asteroid. It is 2.773 AUs from the sun on average. Uh, it has a, its orbit is, it, it kind of sh- good bit. Uh, it's 22% the size of, so I mean, we're getting into the ones that aren't as studied as much, so they are going to become a little bit boring, but this really isn't much smaller than Vesta. Oh, they're very similar in size. So I mean, th- this one, if we send things to it, I'm sure it'll become a lot more. Um, it, this thing makes up 7% of the entire asteroid belt. From time to time, Pallas has been considered throughout history just, you know, because our observations were a little bit off that it, we thought it was the second mark. However, new, newer observation has placed it at third, you know, better technology, better. So we have Hubble pictures of this thing, but it shows very little surface, kind of like the one thing that we did notice from it, though, is the light curve are extremely small in the means that as far as surface terrain, it doesn't seem like it has much of any craters, mountains, oh, anything. Man. Just kind of a perfect ball out there. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, there is obviously some light curve, but it's extremely small. Not exactly. This is almost like a perfect. Um, it was a planet. Wow, that's. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. That makes you wonder if there's some kind of activity on it. Yeah, you would wonder. Like, I mean, it's in the asteroid. You would think that this can't be the one thing in the asteroid never to get hit. <laughs> like, I would think that that would be naive. So it's like it has to have something going on that creates this thing, to, you know, to fill in its holes. Yeah. It's just odd. I would love to see a, and it almost was a part of them. The Dawn mission, they couldn't add this. I think the reason for that is that Pallas hangs around at about the same distance from the sun as Ceres does. Yes, it does. Very and it, seem, it seems to be that they have some sort of resonance relationship, but this is not possible because they are too small. But they are really coordinated. Yeah, they're almost. So there's absolutely no chance that they crash into each other. No. But it's it might be that Jupiter sorted them in sort of some order, but it they look to be related almost. You have to kind of think of they're on the exact same orbit track. They're yes. a couple AU realist or a couple point uh, AU. So. Yes, not not a full AU. Yeah, AU. I mean they're, they're a little bit separated. They're almost on the exact same orbital. So. 
if one's here, the other one has to way over there. Because if it's not, it will run the risk of crashing. So like they hate each other. Yeah, it's like one's on one side of the of the solar system while the other one's on the other side of the solar system orbit. It, it, they have to stay that way because if not, then you run the risk of you know problems. Uh, Pallas is a lot uh, wilder as well. It goes further out and it comes uh, further in. Yes. But uh, their average orbit is uh, very similar. Exact same. Four point six years. Yeah. That's, uh, that's very close. I mean, it's the exact same, 4.6 year orbit. Um, it's not perfectly round, so it's not considered a dwarf planet. And this is another one that if you wanted to consider it one, I mean, I wouldn't argue with it. The light bend, the light curve alone from the Hubble pictures tells me that this thing's rounder than people want to, than we seem to think. But it's just, yeah, that, that should be stressed that we don't know really. Yeah. I mean, if it's round. <laughs> The Hubble picture does not give us a good enough view of it to really say, oh, this is what it is. It just kind of is. Um, it really looks like a picture of Vesta. Yeah. I don't know. A bad picture of Vesta, like a picture from the 70s of Vesta. Okay, so now we're going to move a little closer to Jupiter. Uh, we're going to go to Hygieia. The 10th discovered asteroid in the fourth biggest was found in 1849 by Gasparis. We have no real pictures up close of this one, and although the Hubble pictures... Kind of makes it look like a 20-sided dice. It's heavily carbonous surface makes this thing extremely dark to us. This one's yours, dude. I took the last boring one. (laughs) (laughs) The C-class asteroid, it makes up 2.9% of the mass of the asteroid belt. So there's a major drop-off between the third biggest and the fourth biggest. Yeah, it's about uh, then one-third of the mass of uh, of Vestor Palace. It hangs around the 3.139 AU on average. Very dim, very kind of dark. It's far away, really hard to see. Goes around the sun in 5.57 years. And it seems to rotate very slowly compared to the others. It takes more than 24 hours to, for a day on, um, on Hygieia. 27 point, 27 hours and 37 minutes. That's a long day. That's definitely a long day. We could use those days here. <laughs> the days of Hygieia. Yeah, I mean, we could use those here legitimately. Like, I mean, a 27-hour day would be just about perfect for me. We know so little about Hygieia that we don't even know the diameter. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, it's uh, somewhere between 50 and 500 kilometers. Yeah, so that's a big rage. We, we kind of know the mass better, but still quite uncertain about that. So uh, more more needs to be discovered about this one. It, it really does. I mean, and our next one as well, the last one, the fifth one. Uh, this is going to be an adventure personally for me. As I've demonstrated already in this episode, I have a hard time pronouncing this. Let's go with Intermnia. I hope I got that right. I've been practicing, but I probably still screwed it up. Anyway, Intermnia is our fifth largest asteroid. It's only recently been discovered, as far as the big ones go, found in October 1910. It is the 704th asteroid that we found. Uh, Vincenzo Sorelli is the man who's credited with discovering it, and it is located at 3.067 AUs from our sun. Yeah, look at, look at these numbers. One Ceres, four Vesta, two Pallas, ten Hygieia, 704 Interamnia. It's, it was late. Yeah, this thing is but, stupid dark, and it's super far away, and it's only, you know, it makes up only 1.2% of the asteroid belt. So this is, you know, less than half the size of Hygieia. Yes, it's the biggest F-class asteroid. We are, we think there is absolutely no water on it, making it extremely solid. So high density thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 5.35 years to go around the sun. It's, it's closer than Hygieia. But, uh, no, it's closer than something we talked about. It is closer than Hygieia. Yes, it is. It's closer, closer. by, like, 0.1 AUs, a little yeah, less. That's, you, you think that's uh, not much, but it's uh, many kilometers closer. Uh, there's not much to say about it. Yeah, I mean, it's up, something up. that we just have not been able to study because of its distance, its size, and its basic coloring, like, I mean, we just can't see it yet. We're not going to truly know until we send stuff there. And, of course, everything is uncertain here as well. We, we get estimates of the mass and uh, the, the diameter, but it, it's still uncertain. The last uh, the last figure is from 2014 for the mass, so uh, that's uh, pretty recent. We think it's 350 kilometers across we diameter. Think. We yes. think. <laughs> but we don't know, and that that's kind of makes it hard. We don't know the shape really of it. We believe that it would be roundish just because of the size, but we don't know. No, and because of the density, we um, yeah, it could be that it isn't. Yeah, it, it could be completely, you know, a flat disk for all we know. Well, it's probably not that. But <laughs> and if, if you look at the the pictures of these places, we have these great pictures of Vesta and uh, Ceres, of course. Yep. But we still have pictures that clearly show that. These things are rocks for the others. But for this one, it's just a, a dot. Yeah. I was going to say, did you see a picture besides a dot? Because that's all I saw. 
<laughs> I just got it's like, oh, that thing is moving a lot faster than the stars. So if if you look at the night sky, so it's an asteroid. Yeah, it must be something. There's something there. Um, so yeah, that's those are our big five. Um, I know that you know we promised a whole show on the big five, but some news came out, so we're going to talk about this news. And truthfully, well, yes. once you get past the first two, there's really not as much to talk about as you know we would hope because of the fact that. You know, we've actually sent crap to the first two. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy we did because um, the knowledge we had about Sirius and Vesta in 2014 was really, really ridiculous compared to what we know now. Oh, it was nominal. I mean, now you look at them and you see worlds. Yes. I mean, you legitimately look at them and go, oh, those are worlds. Where before we was just like, yeah, it's a rock. And we didn't really think nothing of it. And now it's like, holy crap, these things are... Especially Sirius. Like, Sirius is alive. Oh, yes. And those two that it went to... I forgot the wildest thing about the the Sirius life theory. Oh, okay. uh, As we could... As you said, we found rocks from the collision on Vesta on Earth. Yes. So, if you uh, think about panspermia, the the transfer of life between uh, celestial objects or objects in space, it could actually... Yeah, there is a non-zero chance that Earth life could have originated on Sirius. That's wild. Okay. <laughs> okay, continue. And the Earth is flat. <laughs> no, it's much more likely than the Earth is flat. <laughs> it is much more likely, but it's not... I said non-zero, so it's pretty close to zero, but okay. it's not zero. Non-zero chance. All right, I'll go with your non-zero chance. So, so I hope the Chinese, they will, of course, only get surface samples from Sirius, but... What if we could drill through the ice? I'm sure we could. But we will drill through the ice on Europa first, I bet. Maybe. I mean, who knows? It just takes one billionaire who's crazy enough to spend his money for us to go there first. Yeah, hopefully a Chinese billionaire that already did it. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to take a real quick break, and we're going to return to talk about something that popped up in the news that I think we need to talk about. It's not something we can ignore. Oh, yes, we do. (laughs) Uh, We'll be back in a moment. Hello. Are you enjoying the show so far? I hope you are. Well, if so, I encourage you all to pause the show. Don't worry. We'll wait. Go to facebook.com forward slash fan of astronomy and hit that like button. You'll be one of the first people to know when a new episode comes out. Also on that page, the guys post articles on the latest news in the astronomy field and outer space in general. You also get to interact with the hosts of our show, Dan and Angelo there. So please hit that like button on Facebook. Thanks. Okay, so we're back to talk about news, which, you know, we kind of kiboshed from the show a little bit, but we did say when something important comes up, we're going to absolutely need to talk about it. And this is something kind of important. A new proposal has been put forth to redefine the geophysical definition of a planet. Okay? You're hearing me on this. Yes. So, so yep. um, go ahead. why are they doing this? Belief is that non-planets cease to be worth exploration by government. So funding is a major reason behind this new definition. And Dan, do you want to explain what the new proposed definition is? Yes. Uh, And in order to do that, I think we have to discuss the old definition first, because uh, planets were never defined until 2006 with the great Pluto debacle. And I get the feeling that one of the main things behind this proposal is that Pluto has to be a planet again. 
And this will make Pluto a planet. Yeah, to us older people, we all grew up with Pluto as a planet. And the reason Pluto isn't a planet, the current definition states that, one, and this was put forward by the IAU, and the first part of it is, it must be round. Yeah, it must be rounded by its own gravity. Yeah, so, all right, it must be a round object in space. That's cool. It also must orbit our star. It must orbit the sun. Okay. Uh, or a star. No, the sun, specifically. That's why we have separate definitions for exoplanets. Oh, okay. And we have a separate definition for rogue planets. Because oh. they do not fit the qualification put forward. It does not orbit the sun. So every planet that's out there is not a planet. It's an exoplanet. Very specifically, like, it well, doesn't cover it. Yeah. Or it's a or it's a rogue planet, but that's a completely different story. <laughs> and it must have cleared out its area of orbit. And that's the that's a big problem with the definition because clearing an orbit is of course much easier if you have a small orbit. Right. So if if you're a giant planet orbiting at 700 AU. Have you really cleared your orbit? If you're an Earth-sized planet orbiting at 1500 AU, which there could very well be one, um, it surely hasn't cleared its orbit. No, I mean, if if it if there's enough junk out there for it to be there, then its orbit is so big that there's still going to be junk there. Yes, if you want to attack this 2006 definition, that's the point of attack, because that becomes a big problem. I mean, it's flawed because it only recognizes planets around our sun and not exoplanets and rogue planets. Plus, the zone clearing thing is just a time thing. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you give it enough time, it'll clear it. So why isn't it a planet before that? You know, it kind of makes <laughs> no sense. It's like, well, so you're telling me in a million years that thing's going to get no bigger, or a billion years, it's going to get no bigger, but it's going to clear its orbit. It's just going to take that long. So that thing's not a planet? What? So according to this definition, then, we get eight or nine planets, counting Planet 9, which probably has cleared its orbit. Uh, planet 9 is not confirmed, so as of now, we have eight. <laughs> we have nine. But uh, we'll get back to Planet 9 when we get there. Uh, the new definition is the following. A planet is a substellar mass body that has never undergone nuclear fusion and has sufficient self-gravitation to assume a spheroidal shape adequately described by a triaxial ellipsoid regardless of its orbital parameters. Okay, so let's break that down. When it says no, has never undergone nuclear fusion. So, so it all, can't be a star. That, that's all that says is it can't be a star. So it's, And that's, that's specifically to exclude brown dwarfs that have gone dormant. Right, right. Sufficient self-gravitation to assume a spherical shape adequately described by a triaxial ellipsoid. So round isn't round if it's on a triaxial ellipsoid. Yeah, that, that'll make uh, maki-maki round. According to this definition, yeah. So, you you know, the one I talked about earlier that, you know, what was that, palace? Where it's like yeah. a ball that somebody stepped their foot on? That would become round under this definition. Oh, that's why they can get to 110. Yes. So, I mean, under that definition, it really changes things. And the new definition would essentially create 110 known planets in our solar system, including our own moon. Yes, because you can orbit a planet and still be a planet. So we would be a fired planetary system. Yeah, and that makes it sound like this is a plan to go to the moon again, because then, of course, you would go to the moon again. Oh, it's a planet. We have to go to it. Uh, eight 
our eight current planets are uh, modified by the words terrestrial, which would be like us, giant, which, you know, is like Jupiter, and ice giant, um, Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody argues that a giant isn't a planet. So for the sake of just words alone, why isn't a dwarf a planet? And that's a pretty good argument. Just by saying that something is a dwarf planet, we don't think of it as a planet anymore. But all those other types are all planets. So because, you know, it, it's kind of weird in, in a perfect world of PC-ness that we live in today. You would think that, you know, just because it's smaller, it's still a planet. You know, it's just I wouldn't walk up to a, a dwarf specifically and go, you're not a person. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you get what I'm saying? So it's it kind of falls in that same thing where it's like this doesn't make no sense that dwarf planets aren't considered planets because, you know, think about it. <laughs> Would you walk up to a little person and go, you're not a person? Oh, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't. I'd hope you wouldn't. And it just kind of is what it is. But 110 planets, Stan, we need to converse about this. We need to talk about, do we think this is a good idea? Do we like this proposal? What flaws do we see in this proposal? We have a lot to discuss here. Yes, I think that moons are planets is my biggest problem with this. See, I like that because when I look at the moon... And me and you kind of had this argument before when I said that, you know, looking from a distance, people would look in and see a, a, a biplanetary system. And I like that definition because when I look at the moon, I see a different world. Yeah, and you would do that more if it was a planet. Yeah, I mean, to okay. me, when I talk about the moon, it's a different world. When I talk about, you know, some of the large Jupiter ones, that's a different world. And if I'm going to use the, the word world, I should be able to use the word planet. Yeah, dig? I'm looking at the picture now of all the proposed planets, yep. but it's so small, so I can't see which one the smallest one is. But th there is a lot of rocks out there that will be planets. As I said, Vesta is number 65 in size for the solar system, so <laughs> 45 more than Vesta. These are small things. Here's one of the flaws that I find in this. Okay. When I went to school, I had to learn all nine planets. Yeah, yeah it became eight. Shut up. <laughs> but I had to learn all nine planets. Can you imagine going to school and having to learn all 110? I saw this addressed somewhere that, uh, no, you wouldn't have to learn 110 because they would talk about classical planets. I guess, but I mean, it's the same. Which include Pluto. I mean, I guess, but at the same time, like, I had to learn the entire periodic table. Oh, God. Yeah. I never had to do that. I had to know that whole freaking thing by the time I got out of my ninth grade science class. Oh, my God. And <laughs> okay. I could not go back over it with you now. Like, it was literally, it was a memorization quiz. And once I no longer needed it, I discarded it. <laughs> like, so I guess I, there would be a lot of uh, sort of under definitions. You would have, like, moon planets and perhaps dwarf planets, classical planets. Gas giants, ice giants, terrestrial. I think you would absolutely have to define them separately. You can say they're all planets, but you would have to define them to make sense of them. You know, it's like, even on like the periodic table, I hate to go back to that. But, you know, there's a portion of it that, you know, especially as of late, because the periodic table has exploded in length. Yeah. That they're like, okay, these are nuclear elements. They disappear as soon as they show up. You, you really don't need to know anything about them. They show up, they disappear. 
<laughs> like we only see these inside of the collider. Yeah. So I mean, sure, there's going to be a, there would be a portion, you know, the rock portion, as it were, you know, the tiny thing portion where we go, yeah, those are there, but you really don't need to learn these. <laughs> and why would you want to? And of course, it would like put more emphasis on the big moons because they are planets. So you would talk about like the the x number of planet moons for Jupiter and then the tiny moons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the giant moons, those, it's kind of weird because if you think of Jupiter as a tiny star, because compositionally it kind of sort of is, it just never went underwent fusion, like it's made of the same crap. Yeah. It just wasn't big enough to, you know, collapse. So you can almost say, well, you know, like Europa, is that the big one out there or, is, or Triton? Ganymede is the biggest one. Okay, so Ganymede. You have Ganymede out there. Which, I mean, no one who looks at Ganymede can say that's not a planet. It has bigger diameter than Mercury. <laughs> I mean, you can't look at that thing and go, yeah, that's not a planet, because it goes around this other thing. No, 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 that's a planet. That is a world. Like, you can land on it, you know, you can colonize. That is a world. The University of Hawaii yeah. has already kind of adopted this. Yeah, and of course the IAU doesn't really have... So it has only the authority that you give it. So if this becomes a commonly accepted definition, then it becomes the definition, and the IAU just has to give in to it. I mean, it's like that with pretty much any uh, body of power. It has as much power as you give it. So. I think the IAU has done a, a really bad job of dwarf planets, because they, they acknowledge five things as dwarf planets, but we have... A lot of dwarf planet candidates, and the question has not been addressed properly since 2006. Right. Because, as I said, there are three objects, clearly round, bigger than Sirius, and if nothing else, they should be dwarf planets. My, my great idol, Mike Brown, he claims that we probably have 300 dwarf planets in the solar system, but most of them haven't been detected yet. Uh, he also reflected on this proposal and... Uh, he was pretty skeptical, I must say. So let's go to the stupid question. Do you like yes. this proposal, and would you accept this proposal? I'm a yes. I'm a solid yes. I am a solid no, I think. it's. Um, I think it's way too confusing. I think it, it makes it simpler. I think it makes it more complicated. If it's round and it's not on fire, it's a planet. Like... How can you make it any simpler than that? Like, now we're going through all kinds of complications where we're saying, yes, well, I mean, the ridges on that thing makes it not quite round, so that does not get to be a dwarf planet. And it's like, what? Shut up. Okay, and that thing, it doesn't orbit our sun, so it's not a planet. It's something else. Oh, it's great that they added a definition of what round is. The triaxial ellipsoid. Yeah, I mean, having that, you know, so it doesn't have to be perfectly round. It could be oddly round. I think this requires uh, more discussion, definitely, because there are some strengths in this proposal and some strengths in the old one, but um, both are kind of flawed. I, I think we're going to find flaws in anything. I think this one, on a teaching level, I think this one is simpler to teach to a child. Like, I had probably an hour conversation with my son today about this before me and you ever talked about this. Cause How had, old is he? Um, he is 16. He'll be 16 this okay. year. Yeah. Um, and he had a lot of questions about it. He's a very inquisitive kid. And, you know, he, like, 
he had a lot of questions about it, which I wish I could repeat them or remember all of them. But we had a long conversation about this, and it does make sense that it's a lot easier to teach to a rudimentary in a rudimentary science class to kids who, you know, for the life of them, I know we all want our kids to be doctors and lawyers, but there's some kids you look at and go, yeah, he's going to turn a wrench for the rest of his life. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great profession. But, you know, th- these people are not astrophysicists, plain and simple. They're never going to be. So, and they're not going to be like Supreme Court judges or anything. These are just, you know, your average kids. So on that rudimentary level, to just tell somebody if it's round-ish, and it's in space, it gets to be a planet, that takes, a, that's a very quick definition that you can teach to any child. And they'll yeah. go, got it. And then if you want to go more in depth, you have the ability to do that. Yeah. You, you see what I'm saying? I think that's where its strength lies in my eyes as a proposal, where the old one, kind of confusing to try to explain, you know, because he's like, well, what's the current definition? And I explained the current definition to my son, and He's like, so let me get this straight. And he brought up the whole, so if Pluto clears out its path in a billion years, does Pluto get to be a planet? And I'm like, well, I don't know if it's going to, but yes. <laughs> Technically, a, by the current definition, you're right. A great strength of this new definition, of course, is that it applies to other solar systems. Yes. And rogue planets as well. We can't forget about these things. They are That's out high. there. I like to go on a tangent Tangent. that I've been thinking about. (laughs) Hey, he says hi, by the way. Oh, hi. (laughs) And hi from the listeners. No, no, Tangent specifically said hi to you. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, So I I looked into exomoons because I was like, wow, surely we can discover some exomoon. And there's a lot of thought going into that. Uh, And we have some exomoon candidates, but we have a problem with the definition of an exoplanet because there are some objects called sub-brown dwarfs. Do you know what a sub-brown dwarf is? Not off the top of my head perfectly. I'll I have tell an you. idea what it is, but... Yes, because to be a brown dwarf and have some fusion in you, you have to be 13 Jupiter masses. Yes. So you have to be a lot bigger than Jupiter mass-wise. But they have found things that have formed like stars. So you have this proto-cloud of a solar system, and it forms into a star-like object. But the whole cloud was way too small, so it forms into a Jupiter-sized object. But maybe it's only ten masses? Oh, maybe it's one. Maybe it's Jupiter forming out there in space without a star. And if we, when we look at these objects, it's much easier to detect stuff orbiting them. So we found five exomoon candidates because they are orbiting these sub-brown dwarfs. But then you run into the problem, what is a sub-brown dwarf? Is it a rogue planet? Because it formed in the way a star forms. But it never reaches nuclear fusion, which I think that is a key we must have for us to call it a star. So but that, that's another problem with the planet definition, because uh, uh, especially with the old one, then, because you orbit a star. And then, hmm. yeah. I, I personally so, would So these that... exomoons, I just have to explain, but they are all Earth-sized, pretty much. Okay. And that's like, okay, but they feel like planets orbiting a failed star. 
But they are that, if you count it as a rogue planet, they are indeed moons. Exomoons. Moons in another system. So, but if you count it as a pla- if you, yeah, you, you see the problem. Yeah, I'm trying to think of this. So what you're saying is we could have rogue planet solar systems. Yes, and we do. We have a, a pretty good indications of one with three Earth-sized objects orbiting it. Huh. And it's, I think it's like, oh, now I don't remember. It might be seven Jupiter sizes. It's never undergone nuclear fusion. Uh, what is it? <laughs> is it a star or a planet? If it's never reached fusion, I can't call it a star. So I would call it a rogue planet. Well, then we have exomoons now. Then yes, I would agree with that statement. But it's uh, it's an inf- uh, it's a topic of discussion among astronomers. I, so it's definitely not cleared yet. I can see why, because I can see both sides of the merit. Because you're like, well, a whole system yes. formed around this thing. That's its star. Its gravitation, you know, alone is going to create a, a type of heat. Not like we're used to, where it's, you know, ray heat. It's more of a gravitational heat, but it does create a heat. So, If anyone knows more about the IAU, I would like to know more, because I, I feel that they are not doing their job. If, if their job is getting definitions done, maybe it's a very hard organization to get to do this stuff. But why are dwarf planets not being nominated as dwarf planets and... Why don't we have proper definitions for stuff like this? See, I'm going to assume, and this is a complete assumption, so yes. don't. I'm going to say that the IAU has too many people in it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably. And when you get too many people, and too in many it, opinions. Yeah, too many opinions. People start to fall into cliques, and nothing ever gets agreed on. You know, that's yeah. why a lot of governments that you see that are smaller tend to work better. Where the big ones turn into shit shows. Yeah, we can see this in many scientific debates uh, in history as well, that some questions that are hard, like these planets, what's a planet, they tend to, the discussion tends to go on until the original people die. (laughs) And then new people can sort of take new positions and think about it logically, but people get so entrenched in their opinions so uh, it could go on for 40 years, worst is. How do you feel about it? Because I personally would say that it's a rogue planet with its own system around. <sighs> yeah, it's... Um, would you call yeah, it that's a, that's a valid opinion, but I can see the other opinion as well. I don't really... I don't think my opinion matters very much there, but... Uh, I'm sure I the listeners want to know. I'm going to say the listeners want to know what your opinion is. Okay, then I'm going to go for fail star and not planets. So we can uh, oppose each other. Okay, why not? I'm right because I'm American. <laughs> and we do everything right. <laughs> but then, of course, how do you track the origin of a rogue planet? So if is it a, a, a gas giant that has been thrown out of a star system? Or did it form on its own? How do you tell that? See, now that's where the real question is. Yes. See, that that right there is where it goes, oh, wait a second, because a rogue planet does not form from a nebula, and it can be a terrestrial planet as well. It's just a planet that does not have a parent star. Um, The current belief is most of those were just thrown out of other solar systems by, you know, Jupiter-sized objects or whatnot. But I don't think that there is a solid definition that says that a rogue planet must form that way. (laughs) I mean, the common perception is that they've been thrown out. 
But that doesn't mean that they had to form that way. In my eyes, I, I think that, you know, okay, yeah, there was a nebula there, and it just never ignited. And then I think we run into another problem, and now we're getting pretty deep. Uh, when we get to the Brown Dwarfs, and we'll, we'll talk about Brown Dwarfs in their own episode, but if you are a size 12.5 Jupiter mass object, and you have a certain composition of materials in you, okay. you could probably have brief nuclear fusion. And maybe you had that two billion years ago, and that would be hard for us to detect. So are you then a star? I think what you do is, as you're detecting it, you take the known parameters, you apply it to current definition, and you make your decision from there. And as parameters change, your opinion should change with it. Like, if we don't yes. know that it has yeah. ever ignited, it's a rogue planet. If we don't know. But the as new data comes in, if we learn that, hey, at one time, this thing did ignite, then we go, oh, no, that is a star or a former star. You know, it's the remnants of a star, whatever you want to say. You know, I think that you can only work with the definitions you're given at the moment and the data you're giving at the moment. You can't, you know, while theoretically it creates a really cool place for us to chat about it, yeah. at some point you have to apply the tools that you have. And it's, of course, a great prelude to our next episode, which will be Jupiter Part 1. Yeah, I have no clue how many parts this is going to be. I just know it's going to be more than one. <laughs> yeah, because Jupiter has a lot of qualities that stars and brown dwarfs do have, but it has never been close to nuclear fusion. We could probably do an episode on the storm alone. <laughs> yes. Then we can do an episode on Jupiter as a whole. Then we can do an episode on, like, the four big moons. Then we can do an entire episode on the rest of the moons. Then we can do... Field. Yeah, and then we can the, do an episode... The Trojans. On the 80 Trojans that are out there. Like, I mean, Jupiter's got a lot going on, so I'm assuming this one's going to be a few parts. We may actually even walk away from Jupiter and come back later, just so we can get through the solar system at, at a... Decent pace. This year. Yeah, because, I mean, we could do Jupiter for the rest of the year. Yes. Theoretically. We'll start next time. We will start and we'll, you know, move to that. But before we do that, we have iTunes, Facebook, Google Play, YouTube. Please go to all those places, download our show, hit those like buttons because most of them have like buttons. Comment, leave uh, iTunes reviews, all that good old stuff. Please do that. I enjoy that. We got a tweet this week from somebody who liked the show. Oh, thank you. Yes, I thought I should tell you that. Um, and, you know, we'll even take the tweets where you can find our official Twitter at where, Dan? Oh, F-O-A Angelo. Yeah, that's it. F-O-A Angelo. Um, and we did receive a very nice uh, tweet from a goddess soul plattle or soup Ladle, sorry. <laughs> when you don't separate words, it's hard to read the first time. Um, but she says she loves the show, and she couldn't wait for this episode, and I appreciate that. Um, I'm assuming it's a she. I'm probably wrong. Uh, you can also reach me on Twitter at Dan Horning, and I love to talk some astronomy as well. Yeah, you can get a hold of me directly at Gonksuo on Twitter. That's G-A-N-K-S-U-O-U. And you can get both of us on the Facebook page. Yeah, it's just fan of astronomy. Just search for it. And um, two posts every day. New YouTube, fan of astronomy, all of the episodes, and some bonus material. 
Yes. I just uploaded, uh, I, I visited another planet in the Sweden solar system model. That happened since last episode. Um, what? We, we do have the Globe Arena in Stockholm. It's a gigantic uh, spheroidal arena. And when it was built in 1990, we uh, they constructed a solar system model on scale with the arena because Sweden is pretty long. Uh, and the model is the size of the country. Okay. So I, I have, I'm looking down at Neptune. It stands in a park here in uh, Söderhamn. We're about 220 kilometers from the arena. Uh, and it's to scale. It's 1 to 20 million. And uh, last week I found Mars standing in a shopping center being about the size of... Uh, uh, I'm trying to find the American term. That's... Basketball, it's slightly smaller than a basketball. Okay. So like a soccer ball. All right. So how big is your sun? Uh, the sun is uh, an arena that seats 10,000 people. Okay. So I don't, I don't know the measurements. I actually done a video with the arena, but I haven't edited it. But I have videos in a playlist on Final Astronomy of me visiting Pluto, uh, Neptune, and uh, Mars. Okay. I'm dying to know how big is Pluto, like golf ball? Uh, Charon is like a golf ball, and Pluto is somewhat larger. Like a baseball, okay. <laughs> and they are in a park in a very small village called uh, Delsbo. So, uh, it's a, it's a big stone monument, and then it sort of has a hole in it where you can look at Pluto and Charon so that you can't steal them. It would be awesome if you guys would put those on rails. <laughs> and actually, Earth, Earth has been stolen several times. Awesome. Because if you put it's them on my rails, old, uh, university and people steal it, it's been stolen like three times. So if you put it on rails, that's kind of like the cow head around here. I'll explain that at a different time. Anyway, <laughs> um, but Neptune is quite impressive. It's uh, like two and a half meters, like eight feet across, and it's uh, they light it uh, during night. And there is uh, a bar where you can sit and be at uh, Triton. If you are sitting in the bar, you are Triton, looking at Neptune. So, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking, I can't get the thought out of my head that if these things were on tracks of some sort, you could put them <laughs> in orbit and show... Yeah, they, they would end up in Russia, though, so that's not a good idea. Ah, Putin will be okay with it. And you have, like, the Heliosphere is the uh, national border to the north. That is so awesome. So, of course, Mercury, uh, Venus, Earth, and Mars are all in Stockholm. So, it's a... It's a solid walk between those four, which I haven't done yet. Why not? So that's, if we get really big, I'll arrange a walk in Stockholm for the listeners. Yeah, if we get really big, I'm going to Sweden. Yeah, and we can have a party. That's, and we are going to film us doing this. We're having a pretty good observatory here, an IMAX theater with the astronomical stuff in it as well. So we could create a whole week full of events. Yeah, we yeah we would absolutely do that if we got big enough. We'd invite fans and everything. That'd be amazing. I want to do this now. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So again, you know, that was our contact info. Um, if you wanted to get a, a hold of me, as I said, Gonksuo on Twitter, I do that. Um, that's my personal one. We have the Facebook thing. Dan said his. And next week we're going to go over Jupiter again. I mean. We're going to miss a lot of stuff. I'm going to apologize right ahead of that because there's just too much. So Yes, this gigantic monster hanging out in our solar system. We but, will come uh, back to it in the future, I promise. 
<laughs> yeah, we're still learning a lot about Jupiter. So. so if you say, hey, you know, you guys barely talked about this part of Jupiter, I'm going to say, yeah, we know. But, like, you know, Triton alone can be its own episode. So we're going to have to glaze over a lot of this, unfortunately. But we'll try to keep it as entertaining as we can and still useful. Yeah. Yeah. So if you like this show, please do me a favor. Tell a friend. Um, if you didn't like this show, still tell a friend. <laughs> yeah. Show, give the show to your friends and enemies. Yeah. Please, you know, word of mouth would be great. Let, you know, let people know about us. Uh, we will talk to you guys in two weeks when we start on our Jupiter thing. But until then, I thank you all for listening and wish that you come back. And also, please continue to look up at the stars. We learn something new literally every day. And maybe you'll spot an asteroid. If you do, you get to name it. That's still going on. It will always surprise. What'd you think? Did you enjoy it? Well, if you did, head on over to patreon.com forward slash astronomy and pledge to these guys. For each patron they receive, the more they will be incentivized to improve the show. So help them out so they can help you out and throw them a couple bucks an episode. They will really appreciate it. Thanks. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 